Hey, Pastor John, welcoming you to our broadcast. Let me ask you this question. Is it enough to just study the Bible as it is, or should we be looking a little deeper? Our sermon today reveals that knowing some background can give us a deeper appreciation for the scriptures. It's called a new commandment. I'd like you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 3 through 17. Just read these. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. I was going to apologize to you because I have a long sermon and we have communion afterwards. But I've spoken to a couple of the demons, deacons, and they said, let's just lock the doors and keep them all here. So that's what we're going to do. I'd like to say that was deliberate, but it wasn't. Many years ago, I had somebody come to me. I just moved into exposition of Scripture and came to me and said, I I don't like this. And I said, well, you know, I'm committed to it. I'm just learning it and that sort of thing. He says, look, look, I I don't need all this background stuff that you're giving me. I don't need this. I said, well, it kind of helps explain the passage. No, 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 I don't need that. He goes, all I need you is to tell me what this says. And, you know, as a matter of fact, I'd prefer if you just read the scripture and let me decide what it means. 
I said, well, I guess that's an option, <laughs> but we're not going to be doing that. Okay, so the, the, for me, and I hope for you too, the, the background information, the, the word studies, that sort of thing, bring the scriptures to life. And, and I, I would pray take us all a bit deeper without the background, without some of the word studies. Uh, you know, we, we, found, we found out over, over the last 20 years, it doesn't change the scripture. It doesn't contradict the scripture. It just kind of help, helps it to, to blossom. So we need to know the background. And I, I want to demonstrate that to you today. John has written this letter to the churches in Turkey. It goes through Macedonia and Asia Minor. Uh, and the letter is here, and this is what we need to keep in mind. The letter is here to combat false teaching. Now, false teaching is not only man-centered, self-centered, but it is tearing the church apart. People are running all over the place. They don't know who to listen to. And in part one of our series, John stated some very simple facts, foundational stuff. In part two, he told us that those facts should have some effect on us and should lead us to repent. Now, repent is more than just asking for forgiveness, more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's, it means a change of heart, a change of behavior. And so we're told to repent so that we can be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with the Lord. It's what Jimmy was just talking about. So today we move on to part three of what's love got to do with it. That's the name of the series. As John goes deeper still and challenges us with a new commandment. Kind of. It's kind of a new commandment. title of this sermon is A New Commandment with a little question mark at the end. So John's still lingering on the basics, uh, but they're now digging deeper into our hearts. He wants, he wants people to live like uh, they belong to the Lord. He wants to encourage all of this by asking four questions about our salvation. And these, these might be familiar questions. A lot of us have gone through this process. So here are the questions. How do we know? How do we know we're saved? What do we do if we are saved? Who are we? In other words, what does this body look like? And why is all this important? So the first question is, how do we know? How do we know about our salvation? Paul gets, John gets right to it. How do we know if we're believers? He says in verse 3, and by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. It's a theme that runs through John's writings. It keeps on popping up. Those exact words show up in John's gospel twice. And in both instances, they occur in the upper room. Now, the significance of the upper room is not just that it's near the end of Jesus's ministry. He takes his time with the disciples up there to go over the things that are important. He knows what's coming. They've been together for three years. And so he says, here are the things that I want you to remember foremost. When you see me go to that cross, I want you to hold on to these things. He wants to equip them. He wants to assure them. Because Jesus knows that hard times are coming. They're going to see it first in him. And then they're going to experience it themselves after he leaves. All of the apostles, uh, except for perhaps John, were martyred quite horribly. So Jesus knows they're going to struggle with these things. He knows there are going to be moments. He knows there are going to be seasons in their lives of doubt. And he wants to give them something to hold on to. 
So in that little intimate gathering in the upper room that we see in John's gospel, when it's just him and those who have been so close to him for the last three years or so, he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then two chapters later in in John 15, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, I want you to notice about those two things, that obedience and love, as far as Jesus Christ is concerned, go hand in hand. John 14 says, your love will lead to obedience. John 15 says, obedience is the evidence of your love. Take a look at the passages. But you know what? Obedience has become a harsh word in our society today, hasn't it? We divide over it. A lot of people think that obedience means some kind of blind, unquestioning subservience to somebody, which will be punished if not strictly adhered to uh, and rewarded if it is adhered to. That's not what John's saying. It's not the message that he's trying to convey here. Still, he says, we should keep his commandments. So I want want to, what does he mean? I want to take a look at the word keep. What does keep the commandments mean? And what would it mean to someone in first century Palestine? Now, we know, we know one thing. John is not commanding perfection here. Because he's already said that no one is sinless. And the word for keep here infers the knowledge of and an effort to conform to. So what John is saying is that believers should have a knowledge of and a desire to conform to the word of God and all of his commandments, even though though we may sin at times. So in this letter, 1 John, John speaks frequently of knowing God. Now, we, we need to be aware of this. He's talking about knowing God. This is because these early secessionists these separatists, these people who have left the church and are trying to draw people away from it, claim to have knowledge of God that is over and above the scriptures. And they became a movement known as the Gnostics. Now we're going to talk about this for a little bit. That movement was spurred on by another early, uh, late first century, early second century movement uh, known as the Docetists, Docetism. And just to boil it down to something simple, they claimed that Jesus was not human, but was divine. And since he was divine, he was perfect. And since we're only human, it's impossible to be like Jesus. And the important thing is not trying to be like Jesus, but to know Jesus. So that's kind of attractive. We don't really have to conform to anything. All we need to know is who Jesus is. Uh, That made, watch what happens here, because now the teaching on sin and righteousness really has no impact on me. All I need to know is Jesus. The important thing was knowing who Jesus was. And that led us to know, brothers and sisters, who we are. The ultimate goal was knowing who we are. 
Those who follow Jesus, they said, are loved by God and saved by him. You need to know that, and that's true enough. But their overall goal was to receive this love and understand their own identity. See the difference between what John's teaching and what these docetists were teaching? Their teaching focused on who we are as believers. John's teaching focuses on who Christ is as the Son of God. So the Gnostics took that teaching and began to develop the idea that we know in our hearts that all this is true. It all just sounds right, doesn't it? We can just feel it. So, if we can just feel that that's right, any passage of Scripture that contradicts that or infers that we are under the law must be about someone else. It can't be about us. It must simply mean something other than what these people are telling us it says because we can just feel in our heart of hearts that we're right. So we got to see what John's doing. He's teaching how we can be sure whether or not we know Jesus other than our feelings. And yet the problem with feelings is they change moment to moment. We all know this. I go through the day, I wake up, I'm confident in a situation. I think everything's going to be fantastic. By 3 o'clock, I'm not so sure. By 9 or 10 o'clock, I wonder what happened. I had great feelings in the beginning of the day and maybe not so great feelings at the end of the day. Or maybe I woke up in a bad mood and some good things happened to me and I go to bed rejoicing. So our feelings aren't really a good barometer for what's true. Matter of fact, if we were honest with ourselves, we'd say we have no idea what's true. We have the word to tell us. Not our feelings. John is trying to contradict that. In particular, our feelings about our salvation. Hmm. You ever wonder whether or not you were saved? Is there anybody who hasn't? Is there anybody who hasn't had that thought cross through their mind? I wonder, I wonder if I'm really saved. John's saying, here's how you find out. You know, you might not feel good about about your salvation, but your salvation is not based on how you feel, based on something else totally. So John expands on this idea in the next verse, verse 4, he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now again, John's not demanding perfection. He's addressing those who say they know him, but also claim that the law doesn't apply to them. John says, the proof that you know Jesus is a desire to know and obey the law. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now, the desire is the evidence of God's love. It's not just the evidence, but that desire is the manifestation of God's love in our lives. If, if the God, love of God is in us, there will be something deep down inside. Maybe it's, it's shouting at the top of its voice. Maybe it's an inkling deep down inside. But there will be something inside us that says, you need to know your Bible. 
You need to draw closer to the Lord. See, this is what John's letter is about. That little voice inside you that says, don't do that. That's not the godly thing to do. Don't hold on to that grudge. That's not Christ-like. Don't get mad at that person. That's not what you've been called to do. Don't hold on to bitterness. Don't judge other people. That's not what we're here for. We are the messengers of God and the vessels of his grace. John says, by this, we know that we are in him. Verse 6, whoever he says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if we say we're living for him, we should be trying to walk like he did. How did Jesus walk? Walked in obedience. He said in John 14, 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go up from here. How do we know? It's not about our feelings about ourselves. It's not about what feels right. It's not about what makes sense to us. It's about a totally different orientation to our lives. It's about our desire to be like Jesus, some effort at some level to be like him. If we have that desire, one to be closer to him, one to honor him, one to honor his word, then that is the Holy Spirit leading us closer to Jesus Christ. And it is the deposit, it is a guarantee on our salvation. Okay, so if... If we have a guarantee on our salvation, what, what, what do we do about this? Our second question. Now, these verses that we're about to go into have to be taken in the context of John's letter. Remember, he's writing against these false teachers and this false teaching that's causing division and tension in the church. He's taking folks back to the basic foundational teachings of their faith. He's reminding them that he was with Christ and he's only teaching the things that Jesus Christ taught him. So he says in verse 7, Beloved, what do we do about this? He says, Beloved, I'm writing that no, you know new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. It's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? Yeah, this is going to sound new to you, but it's not really new. He says, you've heard this before. And the implication is, you've heard it before and it still applies. The old commandment, he says, is the word that you have heard. Now, the word they've heard has been the teaching that they've heard. Watch this. Every lesson, every teaching that Jesus Christ had, that the apostles had, had their foundation in Scripture, in the Old Testament. There was no New Testament at this point. These guys were in the process of writing it. It was the only scripture they had back then. Everything Jesus taught, everything the apostles taught, was in total harmony with the scriptures that we find in the Old Testament. Verse 80 said, at the same time, so he's saying, all that stuff, all that stuff applies. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John says, there's a new way to look at some of these commandments. 
There's a different perception coming. What was not so clear before, he's not saying we're abrogating the law, we're, not, we're negating the law. He's saying the law is coming into crystal clarity here. What was not so clear is becoming clear now. And John is referring to the way that the scriptures were applied before the arrival of Christ. He's saying we're going to apply these a little bit differently now. And actually what he's really trying to say is that was pretty deep back then, wasn't it? And everybody would go, yeah, yeah, you go, well, we're going to go deeper. See, the, the, the old law was a list of do's and don'ts. I may be oversimplifying here, but it describes, in a nutshell, the way the Jews did life. If you did what God said, you were blessed. If you didn't do what God said, you were cursed. Now, that kept things nice and tidy at the start, but things got complicated real quick. Men began to improve and to refine upon the words that God gave them. So that's kind of a human trait, isn't it? I mean, we like to know what the boundaries are. We like to know what the rules are, what the procedures, what the regulations are. And frequently, that has a tendency to overcomplicate things. It's exactly what happened. Trying to set up rules and regulations that make things easier for us. Now, now, there's there's nothing wrong with that. it's not a huge problem because we're always processing. But we need to understand something. How well we adhere to our eternal standards doesn't really have much influence on our eternal destiny. How we feel about what we've done doesn't really have a, a, an impact on our salvation. And, and what I'm trying to tell you is this. But, you know, feelings are important. We may disappoint ourselves from time to time. We may fall short of the mark from time to time. But we're never going to disappoint Jesus. It's not going to happen. There's no moment in which God is sitting on his throne and says, gee, I wish you hadn't done that. You know, I sent my son to die for you, but not for that right there. So the rules and regulations are good, but when we fall short of the rules... We don't get kicked out of heaven. Peter's not going to stand at the gate and go, oh, we didn't anticipate that. You can't come in. So God is not disappointed in us, as guilty as we may feel. Uh, You know, we may struggle a bit if we get a little over-arrogant about these things. But our salvation, brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. Our salvation is totally dependent on the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. He said it is finished. It's not dependent on how we feel about it. That's why if you come to me and say, Pastor, I'm just really struggling. I don't know if I'm saved. I said, it's okay. (laughs) But I don't know if I'm saved. It's okay. Okay? Because God's not going to ask you how you felt about your salvation when you stand up in heaven. All he's going to ask is, where are you with my son Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Because I've already done the saving work. The question is, do you know that? So we can feel as bad as we want about ourselves. God still loves us. So John keeps things simple. Verse 9, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And, and, and he's talking about the false teaching. He's saying, whoever says, who's ever telling you that they're living like Jesus Christ in the light, yet harbors hate 
for other Christians isn't really living in light. They're still living in evil. These are the secessionists, the separatists, the people who claim to know Jesus, yet who are openly disobedient to his laws. They're causing division and pain. And that's what's happening. They're, they're, they're tearing the, the church apart. They're causing tension. They're telling folks, you should come over here. We're more like Jesus than those folks you're with. And you know how this goes. People are starting to feel some pressure. Friends are over there. Well, I've got friends over here. They feel like they need to make a decision. And those tensions cause some doubt about what's going on. They cause some distrust. The unity of the church is rent and torn. And John says, that's not love. That's not love. This isn't what Jesus is like at all. You see, these separatists have a disregard for the welfare of the body of Christ. John says instead of tension, distrust, and division, there should be love. Verse 10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. This type of love, love that has regard for each other, regard for each other's welfare, more like Jesus, and doesn't cause others to stumble, doesn't cause others to have doubt or distrust. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John's saying, these people, they're telling you they know Christ. They're saying they don't sin. They're telling that telling us that the scriptures don't pertain to them. They try to convince you to believe what feels right instead of what we know to be right. Those folks are causing division, and that's just not true. It's not good. It's not love. It's evil. So what do we do as believers? How do we respond to this? We don't enter the fray. We don't engage in all this. We decide, we make the conscious decision to love. We seek the welfare of our brothers and sisters. We cling to the truth, and we try as best we can to live like Jesus Christ. We try to live in the lights so that, so that, so that we don't cause other people to stumble like they're doing. It wouldn't cause them to doubt and distrust. And with all that in mind, who are we then? Who's John writing this to? You know, is it segmented? Lest there be any question who John writes his letter to. And I've got to tell you something. I've heard that 1 John 1 is written to unbelievers. And that kind of goes true for the whole book. Well, here we are in 1 John 2, and John says, well, let me tell you who's supposed to be reading and absorbing this letter. He lays it all out quite clearly. He said, I'm writing to you, little children. Now, the word he uses here is technion, technia. It's a word a teacher would use to address his disciples, those people who follow him. In other words, John is writing to the entire church. 
Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So he wants the entire church to know. He's talking about those people who have made a profession of faith. Those people who have a desire to walk like Christ. He says, your sins are forgiven. And look why they're forgiven. Oh, your sins are forgiven because you're just such wonderful people and God needs you in heaven. He does it for his name's sake. does it for the glory of God. does it so that we can be the witnesses that we're supposed to be. He's ready to remind them that forgiven, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. Just so there's no mistake, John says this series of things, 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. It sounds like John is repeating himself here, but his intention is not to single out any one of these people, any segment of them. His audience in the first century, when he says the word men, would understand it to mean all men and all women and all age groups, young and old, men and women. John says this is to everybody. And he would probably put a coat if you think it's not to you, it is. <laughs> Those who want to live like Jesus, who are walking in the light, are forgiven. They are overcomers. They know the Father because they know the Word. And it abides in them, and it gives them strength. And it gives them victory. That's all there in those two verses. Now, watch this. Their victory comes... Not because they have a feeling, but because they know the word of God. It's not because somebody has shouted out, you're victorious, and everybody starts jumping up and down, we're victorious, we're victorious. Because of the word of God. This isn't something that has been worked up emotionally in them. Okay, so that, that's some pretty profound teaching. Why is John so urgent about this? Why is all this so important that John keeps on going over and over the same things again packaging them a little bit differently each time why is it he seems emotional in verse 15 he begins explaining why this is important do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him the theme keeps on coming for all that is in the world watch this All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John is saying, you think this is all about you? No. Everything the world tells you about who you are and what you earned and what you deserve and what you should be is not the, the way things are supposed to be. Those are from the world, and this world is corrupt. And we need to understand how corrupt it is, because in verse 17, John says, and the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Still, we need to be reminded that John is 
writing this letter against the false teaching that's permeated the church. John cautions his readers not to be seduced by theologies that focus on the self. They are worldly. They are not from the Father. They are anchored in this world. And this world is passing away. So there's our four questions. How do we know? How do we know about our salvation? It's a bit more complicated than mere obedience. We can't measure it by how well we obey. It certainly calls for obedience. But the whole Gnostic concept is focused on me, not on Christ. Our desire to be obedient shows the world that our lives are being lived in and for Christ. Not as some way of affirming ourselves, not of going on some soul-searching journey for our identity, not as a way to live without rules or boundaries, but as a way to honor God in everything that we do. And it's not about how perfectly we walk those desires out. It is the fact that we have those desires to be like him, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in us and the deposit of our salvation. So what do we do with that? Well, what the false teachers are doing, they're causing problems. John says they're living in evil. They're living in darkness. Contrast to that is what believers should be doing is living in the light, living in peace, causing harmony, not discord or, or dissension. The writer of Hebrews says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So who's the letter written to? Brothers and sisters, it's written to those who know the word of God. Those who have victory over evil. Those who have victory over shabby and false and incomplete teaching. They're not seduced by their feelings on all this. They're not led into complacency by searches for who they are or teaching that focuses on them instead of God. They are peacemakers. They are gentle. And they are humble in spirit. Why is it important? It's important because this world is temporary. This world is temporary. Oh, it seems so permanent. It seems so permanent, particularly when we're having a struggle, doesn't it? But it's temporary. It's not meant to be permanent. This isn't our home. It's tainted. It is imperfect. And those who believe in Christ, those who understand what John is saying and follow him, are destined for something far, far better than what we have here. It's far more glorious and far more permanent than anything that we can possibly imagine. So it's upon us to know the difference between the teaching of this world and the teaching of the eternal realm. So it's not to be misdirected as to how we live. John's primary message in this passage is this. Our salvation is not dependent on our feelings. It's not based on any experiences we have or even some teaching that emphasizes how important you or me might be. Our salvation is based on the work done by Jesus on the cross. Oh, we need to hold tightly to that. 
Based on the work Jesus has done on the cross and the living word of God, and anyone who tells you different is leading you down the wrong path. Our lives should be centered on Christ. See, you see, you see why we need to know the background. If, if we didn't know why John wrote this letter, we didn't know what the situation was. It would seem like a random collection of thoughts. There's some nice stuff in there about love. There's some other stuff about, you know, next week we'll hear about the Antichrist. This is not going to be what you think it is. Maybe John's writing a little bit about love, a little bit about church unity. Don't listen to the bad guys, okay? This letter is far more focused than that. John is zeroing in. It's filled with warnings about the nature of bad teaching and the nature of those who are teaching it. The story of the Bible and our lives of all creation is centered and focused on Jesus Christ and the redemption that he offers us on the cross. And it's not about us. It's about him. It's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of God revealed not just in the sacrifice made on the cross, but in the resurrection that came three days later. That's what Jesus taught. That's what John is teaching. And he's saying anything that takes you away from that takes you away from Christ. So we're about to we're about to go to the communion table. Now we've talked about communion several times, and 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 you know I keep going back to what is this celebration about? What is this observation about? It is a memorial participation. It's supposed to bring to mind uh, the the night that Jesus held up the cup and the bread and said, "This is my body and this is my blood." And, and uh, made the reality of that when he went to the cross. But there's something supernatural about what we're about to do. Uh, This is so soaked in Jesus Christ and everything that he taught. Uh, It's an expression of the gospel, um, but it's an incredible supernatural expression of unity, our union with him. And consequently, our union with each other. So if you're here today, and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're invited to the communion table with us. Don't have to do an interview. Don't have to be a church member. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then we would just respectfully ask that you refrain from taking the elements. Come and talk to me afterwards. We'll talk more about this. But as we hold this crust of bread in our hand, we'll take it together. We're holding the body of Christ. We'll pass these out, we'll take them together, then we'll take the juice together. There's nothing supernatural about this crust of bread. But there is something eternal about about what it represents. So when I say we're holding the body of Christ, I just want you to think about what's happening right now. Because he did this over 2,000 years ago so that we could have this moment right here. said to his disciples, when you see me hanging on that cross, that's my body, which is broken for you. 
He's talking to all of them. It's a collective thing, and he's talking to us as well. So this incredible thing happens when we, when we do this, this act of confession and repentance. The scriptures tell us that we are then in union with Christ when we confess our sins, when we repent, when we do more than just say, I'm sorry, I sinned, when we, our heart turns towards God and away from the things that we worshiped and idolized before, uh, it says that we become united with Christ. Do you understand what that means? The Son of God, a full-fledged member of the Trinity, we're invited to become part of him? How can this be? I, I mean, you know your thoughts. I know my thoughts. I know that when I look at my thoughts, there's no way in the world that I am qualified to be part of the Trinity. Somebody say amen. How can this be? Oh, brothers and sisters, this should drive us to our knees. Saying thank you for the grace of God who does this because he's God, not because of anything I am or anything I've done, just because he's God. He's called me into union with his son. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, this will. Because we're in union with him, we're in union with each other. The body of Christ. When we receive this, we're recognizing the fact that God has knit us all together to be his agents here in this world and has promised us that his son will come back and take us into his presence forever. He said, take and eat. juice, the wine, whatever we want to call it today. Again, Jesus holds up this cup and he says, this is, this is my blood. Now, l- let, me, let me tell you where this comes from. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. You have a few minutes? Doors are locked. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve fall and as God pronounces the curses, he, he slaughters two animals. As far as we know, they haven't seen death. And he covers them with the skin. So it's the first hint that sin will be covered by blood. Pretty incredible. But then we have Moses and the people in the, in the wilderness, and we find out that the whole sacrificial system is based on blood and sacrifice. So we find out that there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. So fast forward to Cana, the wedding. Jesus goes to a wedding and they run out of wine. He hadn't done anything yet. Nobody really aware of his presence. His mom knows, Mary knows. And she goes to him and says, do something. He says, 
Oh, you know, my hour has come. What he's saying is, you know, if I do this, this is the beginning of something that is going to end up being an arrow to your heart, Mary. And she says, yeah. She turns to the servant and says, go ahead and do whatever he tells you to do. So he tells the servants to take the water to the master. Only it's not just water. It is sacramental water. It is the water that is used to ceremonially cleanse the utensils. And by the time they get that water to the master, it's turned into what? Wine. Oh, it's quite a miracle. And Jesus is just setting the stage for what was cleansed in water will be cleansed in something else. So we have Jesus' ministry bracketed by Cana and the upper room. In the upper room, he takes the cup of what? Wine. And he holds it up and he says, this is blood. And everything changes. Because those things that were washed in water were washed in wine. The wine represents the blood of Christ. And by this, we are cleansed. The sacrifice of all sacrifices. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. We're renewed by receiving the body. We're cleansed by receiving new blood. Take and drink. Lord, we thank you for your grace. It is immeasurable. It it breaks our hearts, Father, to know that you've done this for us when we were yet sinners. That the only thing we add to our salvation is our submission to it. And we give you thanks, Father. We give you thanks for the body. We give you thanks for the blood. We give you thanks for knitting us together, calling us to do the things that you call us to do, and the promise of bringing us home. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you.